You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's been compared to a leviathan, a conspiracy, the Bermuda Triangle of Law, great force that denies us Americans the justice we seek when we reach the marble steps of the Supreme Court of the United States. It crushes our hopes. It whispers in the ear of the highest judges in the land and tells them what to do. Scary stuff. But really, this is a lot to say about a bunch of law students. We'll discuss this great controversy in a moment, but we must acknowledge it is the result of one man, a former president, and his desire to not be president. In modern times, where it seems so many people want to be president, it's hard to fathom a person who would not. William Howard Taft, though, was in that category. He was born into a judicial family. His grandfather was a judge. His father was a judge at the Ohio Supreme Court. He was an assistant prosecutor and then himself at age 30 became a judge on the Ohio Supreme Court. It was a fast rise, no doubt, but it didn't hurt that he was involved in Ohio Republican politics. When Benjamin Harrison became president, he was appointed Solicitor General, the government's man at the Supreme Court of the United States. He loved it and hoped he might get an appointment to the Supreme Court when William McKinley of Ohio was elected president. But no, instead, McKinley appointed Taft to deal with the administration of the rebellious Philippine Islands after the Spanish-American War and Philippine Wars. He became civilian governor there. Then, President Theodore Roosevelt plucked him out to be Secretary of War. The nation wasn't at war, but this office put him in charge of the Panama Canal Project and ingratiated him with the president. Great! Maybe now he'd get that Supreme Court assignment that he wanted. But no, in 1908... Teddy Roosevelt wasn't running, and Republicans needed a competent man to run. His wife, Teddy, party regulars urging, reluctantly ran for president, defeated William Jennings Bryan, and won. He hated the presidency, though, hated the decisions he had to make, hated the people that he had to anger. He soon got into an ugly contest with his former mentor, Roosevelt. He expressed to friends, that still his main desire was to be on the Supreme Court of the United States and to make judicial decisions. And it must have killed him to have appointed during his presidency, just a one-term presidency, six people. That's a lot. Six people to the Supreme Court. Taft didn't win re-election due to the challenge from Roosevelt, but he didn't give up. He became a professor at Yale, and he argued for Wilson's League of Nations and wrote many magazine articles on modern law. He was a respected legal scholar, and after Warren Harding of Ohio was elected, he was a logical choice for the Supreme Court of the United States. He may have set up his own seat on the Supreme Court. Here's how. Chief Justice Edward White 
White um, had passed away right after Warren Harding became president. White, a Louisiana Catholic, had been approved by Grover Cleveland, who was a Democrat. Taft had made him chief justice. Why would Taft, a Republican, appoint a Democratic appointee? In the real politic of things, it was more likely that Charles Evans Hughes, been a former governor of New York, very popular Republican, would be made chief justice, even though he had only been on the Supreme Court for less than a year. Whitehaft, the Republican, appointed Edwin White is known only to him, but there are theories. The nicer one is, well, he was reaching out. Here was a Democrat, a Southerner, a Catholic. Sure, he could appoint Charles Evans Hughes, the popular and young New York governor, and uh, he had made him already an associate justice to the court earlier in the year. Republicans would love it. But the right thing to do was to appoint the veteran, 65 years old and 16 years on the court, Edward White. Well, that's one theory. The other is that Taft suspected White would give him a better chance of a vacancy down the line, being that White was older. He, Taft, may be appointed Chief Justice of the United States as he wished after his presidency, whether he had one or two terms. In a way, that exactly came true. So 10 years after his appointment of White, Taft was now holding his gavel and wearing a robe. This is the surprising part. In court history, Taft is remembered not for the opinions he so desired to write as much as his politicking, the kind of actions you would expect from a president. So he must have gained something from the presidential experience. He was the best advocate that the Supreme Court ever had in front of Congress. As Chief Justice, he lobbied the body to improve the workings of the court, including the buildings. That building you see, if you go to visit Washington behind Capitol Hill there, is the result of William Howard Taft, the marble steps, the columns, the whole building. It's the result of Taft's lobbying. Before him, the court used to conduct its business in the Capitol building, in the Senate wing. Now, it was a nice chamber. There are posh chairs, high arched ceilings, engraved nice uh, eagle in the center of things. But things were a little cramped. No one had offices but the chief justice and the clerk. And they had one room to be both the conference and the library. Got a little crowded, and Congress gave in to his lobbying in 1929 and appropriated funds for a new building. But Taft didn't only lobby Congress. In 1925, he went on a speaking tour of the United States to push for court reforms. Among them was a plan to reduce the workload and give them more time to spend on the merits of cases. An important change in the Judicial Act of 1925, which the Congress passed at his behest, was the statement that review of a case is not a matter of right, but of judicial discretion. Writs are granted only for quite compelling reasons. The only president to be named to the Supreme Court after his presidency is remembered for the political lobbying that he did. This process, the granting of a writ of certiorari or hearing or inquiry, really a command to get all of the documents of a case from a lower court so that the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, may review, is a process that occurs before a case ever gets to become one of the famous court decisions or even one of the more boring ones that you don't hear about. It occurs in secret. On Fridays, during the court's term, justices gather and go over some of their list of perhaps 8,000 or more petitions, would-be cases. To be fair, the process covers everything that gets to the Supreme Court. Some are elegant, printed presentations of legal masterwork by top firms, and some 
are handwritten on legal paper by an ambitious prisoner, though they do require the paper to be eight and a half by 11. Both of these receive equal review. The majority of the list of petitions in 2010, 80% were in forma pauperis, meaning that the people could not afford the $300 charge for filing at the Supreme Court, nor the expense of legal fees, perhaps. Even these cases need to be well-constructed if one wants a case to be heard at the Supreme Court. Citing the reasons for granting very carefully is important. That may be the only part of the document that is read by any justice at all. Citing clear cases in your section on applicable law that match your argument and then are well decided with no recent overturns. You may have an opponent also, remember, who will be answering your petition for writ of certiorari with reasons to deny, so you better argue well. An easy way to get your petition thrown out is merely to claim another court made an error. Be gone ye. That's not what SCOTUS is for or what it's ever been for. Chief Justice Vinson, presiding during Truman's presidency, once said, The Supreme Court is not concerned with the correction of errors. The Founding Fathers might have agreed. The members of the Constitutional Convention may have agreed. And the members of the First Congress that set up the initial Judiciary Act of 1789 probably would have agreed. The court is there to assure uniformity of the law and to resolve conflicts, not to correct errors. That may be a surprise for many Americans who think they're going to the marble steps to get their final justice. The court is only concerned where a conflict exists between federal district courts, where the federal government, through the Solicitor General usually, seeks its ruling, where a lower court is brazen enough to rule in a way that's clearly opposite to a case that's already been decided by the Supreme Court, how dare they, or a matter of simply great national importance. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Under these criteria, you can see that an issue like the recent health care reform bill was a no-brainer. Three out of four conditions there. Solicitor General wanted it heard. There was conflict between the district courts, and it is certainly a great uh, national important issue. But the overwhelming amount of issues that seek the court's attention are denied. Complained one lawyer who has argued before the court, most of my clients are paying me good money for petitions that will never be heard or perhaps even read by a justice. Indeed, of all the petitions that arrive at the Supreme Court, only a percentage make it on the discuss list, the list of cases to even be discussed whether they'll hear. The Chief Justice makes this list, and that's where the Chief Justice position becomes a little more powerful than the other justices, 
But generally, any justice, if they want to discuss a case, can give that to the chief justice, and he will put that on. Of the 8,000 cases brought to the Supreme Court, only a fraction, maybe 10, 15%, even make this discuss list. The meetings are held on Fridays. During the court's term, justices vote, and the vote is recorded but kept secret. Luckily for history, Justice Harry Blackman made his papers visible to the public so that the process can be seen and those forms can be seen. So justices vote to either grant a hearing in a case, deny a hearing in a case, or sometimes they vote with the number three, which I'll explain in a bit. If there are four justices who wish to hear a case, it is heard by the Supreme Court. Now, why four justices when there's nine justices in the Supreme Court? That's not a majority. Well, it's intended, this so-called rule of four is intended to deny majority control, tyranny of the majority over hearing, and makes the standard for hearing a case a substantial one for justices who do scrutinize these things very carefully, but not prohibitive. Even though a majority of five may deny hearing a case, four justices want to hear it, the case is heard, who knows, they might be convinced later in the oral arguments. The rule of four has been Supreme Court rules since Taft's changes in 1925. Now, it's common to see a three on some of the Blackman archives, and what this is, is a joint three vote. It is a weak yes. A justice may say they will vote to hear the case to grant cert if the others really want it. So I'm not really for hearing it, but I'll join with three if three others are convinced to hear. The court, despite ideological differences, is a cordial body, and the join three is done in the spirit of hearing more cases where possible. Byron White, Blackman, and Hugo Black were among many justices known to want more cases and were known to be easy votes for either granting or joining three. Recent justices definitely vote for certification less. In fact, a recent study of this showed that both Clarence Thomas and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in their first years voted for certiorari about half the time as their predecessors. This has fluctuated over the nation's history. The caseload has grown since the court began. If you look at 1803 under Justice Marshall, the real beginning, it wasn't the actual beginning of the court, but the real beginning of the court as we know it, 51 cases. In 1845, under Taney, 173. 1870, under Chase, you're up to 636 cases. In 1890, under Chief Justice Fuller, you're up to 1,836 cases. Way too many to give any time to and to make reasoned decisions. So the U.S. Court of Appeals was created to kind of sort through some of these cases so that not everything arrives at the justice's door. Now, By 1890, you're back down to the hundreds, 275 potential cases arriving at the Supreme Court. Progressive era had occurred. Laws were passed under Taft's administration as well. You're back up to 1,000 cases as these progressive laws create litigation. 1,000 cases potentially to be heard by the Supreme Court. And growth continues to climb. 1,300 potential in 1950, 2,200 in 1960, and then even more with the proliferation of civil rights cases in the 1960s and the presence of a few justices on the Supreme Court who wanted to hear more cases. You're up to 4,781 in 1980, 7,000 by 1995. Louis Brandeis said that judges were alone in the federal government as high officers for doing their own work. Charles Evans Hughes 
defending the court under attack by Franklin Roosevelt, who had a plan to pack the court, said that the process is laborious. We handled over a thousand cases, but the court is able to perform it adequately and doesn't need changes. All of the justices participate. Yet by the Burger Court of the 1970s, reviewing all the potential writs for certiorari was too burdensome to keep up with the public heroics that the court liked to talk about. Each of the justices had to review each of these potential cases, thousands of them. They had a few clerks to help, but the clerks had to review all of the potential docket. So either Justice Lewis Powell or Chief Justice Warren Berger, or both of them, there's no real written history, came up with the idea of a cert pool. A few of the justices' clerks would split up all the cases instead of every justice looking at every potential case. One clerk would be assigned to review the case and write a thorough pool memo. This would be more manageable for time reasons, and each case would get a little bit more review. Someone, at least, was looking at it thoroughly. By 1981, the idea had succeeded in that all but Justice John Stevens was using the cert pool system. And in the early 80s, the clerks would not just write the cert pool memo, but had to write a recommendation, yes to grant or no deny. Should we be concerned by that? Especially where in about three-fourths of cases where it's been studied, remember, these are secret votes, but at least we have Harry Blackman's archives available in public. In three-fourths of cases, justices follow the clerk's recommendation to grant or deny. Are the clerks making the decision? Should this concern us? It concerns many. Justice Brennan had once said, granting of certiorari was the court's most important function. Are they treating that function well? It might be impossible to do otherwise. With 8,000 petitions, that's what they're getting now at the Supreme Court, if the nine justices did nothing but spend 40 hours per week, 50 weeks a year, you got to give them two weeks for vacation, right? They would spend the entire time only reading cert petitions and would only have 15 minutes anyway to devote to each petition. So it just simply cannot be done that the justices can read everything. But is the court going too far in the other direction with this cert pool, giving too much discretion to these clerks, usually a year out of law school, particularly the anointed writer of that cert pool memo, who has influence over a particular case? Kenneth Starr, former Clinton special prosecutor and the solicitor general under George H.W. Bush, feels so. And he complained that too important a responsibility is going to law students who might be 25 years old. And important cases are not being heard. Author Jeffrey Tobin hoped that Eleanor Kagan, when she came on as a Supreme Court justice recently, would not join the cert pool. And many in the legal community hope so as well. When everybody is in the cert pool, Tobin said, it gives the clerks too much power. And thus, many observers of the court gasped a sigh of relief when Justice Samuel Alito took his clerks out of the pool. Now, what does this mean? That means that his four or five lucky clerks have the honor of writing up memos, not just for a fraction of the cases that they are assigned to pool, but all 8,000 petitions that arrive at the Supreme Court. His clerk's team has to read them all. They don't skip any. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But it also means they have to work fast. According to a former clerk for Stevens, who was the last justice to be out of the cert pool, being a Stevens clerk meant that they were rushed and could not delve into memos the way the pool writer could. They had a mile-wide, inch-deep view. William Douglas once said, Clerks do much of the work of the justices. And former Justice Robert Jackson said, Congress may want to consider appointing clerks, as they are really like a junior court. But who are these people? Well, they're law students, or law students a year out, but they are excellent ones. The Ivy League mostly, and Harvard and Yale predominate. Legal scholars of great ability. Clarence Thomas makes a point of picking at least one non-Ivy League clerk each year. Generally, they're going to match the ideology of their boss. Anton Scalia was making a point of hiring a liberal each year, and I'm not so sure that he's doing that anymore. Generally, they're going to match the ideology of their boss and be in sync so that they can properly write the memos. This was the case with a clerk in 1979 who made an impression on his peers, the other clerks, by his ability in a court of sorts. They called it, Riley, the highest court in the land. Upstairs in the Supreme Court building, there is a tiny gym, and it has a cement basketball court. And in that court term, a young clerk was known for his aggressive play and for sharing the conservative views of his boss, Justice William Rehnquist. One of the clerks said, He played an aggressive style of basketball that left other co-clerks with the bruises to show it. But John Roberts was also known for his hustle outside of the court, where he applied William Rehnquist's view of the relation between courts and legislatures strictly, where he held a strong view of executive power and wrote memos with his conservative view of states' rights. Definitely in sync with his boss, a fellow clerk said. The elevation of John G. Roberts to replace his former boss and mentor is a signal that these clerks aren't just any law students. Supreme Court of the United States clerkships are prized achievements in the legal world, and clerks go on to top firms, they're professors at top schools, and even, sometimes, they're appointed to the Supreme Court. William Weinquest was a clerk for Robert Jackson in the 1950s. Byron White, John Paul Stevens, and current Justice Stephen J. Breyer were other justices who were former clerks. So they are the superstars of academic jurisprudence, and perhaps athletics. But does that mean that they should carry the weight of granting or denying the cases we'd like to see in the Supreme Court? Why should they get the decision? How much power should they have, especially if no president and no Congress approve them? 
William Rehnquist played down such concerns, saying that the decision to grant a case or deny a case is not the same as making an opinion of the Supreme Court. It was a more channeled decision than judging a case. The author of the Poole Memo's power is mitigated by other factors. Yes, they read the petition thoroughly. Yes, they write a memo and then recommend to the rest of the body to grant or deny. But there are still nine justices watching what they do, with potential to dive in and read at least part of the case, maybe just the questions of law section, and review their recommendation to be sure it's right. They will be quickly admonished for any breach, such as recommending a case that doesn't meet the strict criteria of review. Justices will also have their clerks review that pool memo and mark up, you know, usually something like, I agree, deny, or I disagree. And if a clerk has a particular bias, the other justice's clerk will look a little bit more carefully to see signs of building up a case trying to pretend that there's more of a conflict in the district courts that there are, accepting the plaintiff's contention that there's a disagreement between the courts where there's not, or even in the other sense, covering up a case's potential national importance. You know the biases of the clerks, a former uh, clerk had said in a news article. So there are some checks on this. And then there's just informal checks. It's common for clerks to engage in vigorous debates among themselves over these potential cases. It's common for justices to walk into a clerk's office and formally take a stroll around the block, talk about potential cases. The idea of a single pool writer whispering in the ears of the nine justices would not match the experience of most clerks who have been public about their time at the court. Add it to the Alito clerks we talked about, who will be looking at every petition in addition to the pool writer, offer some protection from that bias. And on top of this, clerks are corrected. Justices spend a lot of time instructing their clerks what to look for, to look at dissents in some of the cases, to delve deeper into the petitions. Fear of error is a major motivator for these clerks. Said one lawyer who argues before the Supreme Court, the way for a clerk to become notorious is to recommend review in a case that the justices dismiss because of a procedural flaw. Indeed, it may be, that these clerks have not too much, but too little power in the pool. They can be candid with their own justices in these memos, but in a pool writing to all the nine, that has some chilling effects. John Paul Stevens called it the timid law clerk syndrome. You stick your neck out on a case as a law clerk, he said, when you recommend cert. The most risk-adverse thing to do is deny. Stevens should know he was a clerk himself. Denial is the most common of all of the petition recommendations, even when a case meets all the criteria we discussed about. So what? So what if district courts disagree? Maybe the issue needs to fester more, to percolate, to get resolved at the the court level. Maybe it is an important federal issue that could use resolving. Sure, there might be a better case coming down the pike. This is a frequent reason for denying. If it's important, it'll come up again. And nobody wants cases that are going to lead to fracture opinions where maybe four justices agree, four justices dissent, and one justice agrees only with parts of the decision. So it's very hard for the lower courts to interpret the law from there. Nobody wants that. So it could be said that these clerks just reflect the kind of conservatism that the judges have, though they might be multiplying it. It seems because justices always vote in every term for more cases to be heard 
than their clerks recommend. This has led to various proposals to go off the pool for summers, to have two or three pool writers, to ask Congress to set up another court for certiorari. The latter is not popular with the Supreme Court justices, who feel that although they have set up this mechanical process within their court, that's their prerogative, it's their process, their clerk's trained, and they do instruct them and correct them, it's still their decision to hear or deny that only a fraction of decisions reach the Supreme Court and get a hearing is not new at all. But the amount that actually are decided on has decreased. In the 1980s, it was common to see 150 cases on the Supreme Court docket. Now, 70, 77, 80, 75, these are the kinds of numbers we're seeing. The certiorari process leads many people to the steps of the Supreme Court waiting, never to see justice. But it is rooted in two principles. One is that there is a desire to keep the petition costs low and accept the petitions of the impoverished, which creates a much larger initial flood. You know, 80% of them are the informal pauperis. That might be different if the Supreme Court, say, charged $5,000 or limited uh, those who could apply who had no funds. And it does create a lot of easy-to-deny petitions, which might throw the numbers off. Poorly argued ones, petitions with no business in the Supreme Court that might refer to state law rather than federal law that are not of any great importance, that don't apply to a lot of people or affect a lot of people's lives. So in keeping that principle, and anybody can at least petition the court, you've created a situation where the petition count's going to be high. The second principle at work, which most people agree, would agree with, is the independent judiciary and, of course, in the Constitution, the lifetime appointment of judges with ultimate scrutiny over what they hear. Sometimes decisions resolve things when they're made at the Supreme Court, and sometimes they create new hurdles for lower courts and for American society as they try to figure out how to readjust to new decisions. There's a good and a bad side to the Supreme Court hearing a case. Thus, this independent body is executing more cautiousness over the court, the cases that it hears. Justice Reinquist once remarked that if we think the amount of cases we hear are too few, we can fix it. We'll hear more cases. It reflects a humorous arrogance, perhaps, but also reflects an ancient independence. He might have added, and no other branch can tell us to do otherwise. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I have a link to the Facebook site where you can comment on things there. And I note this at the end of every show, but I can't emphasize it enough. If you do like the program, tell someone about it. It's the only way to spread the word for people who like both history and politics. I want to thank you for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.